0: Well, good evening. If uh, you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't, it's going to be up on the screen. That's where we're going to start uh, tonight, Philippians and chapter 4. So we're continuing our series on winning the war in your mind. This is based on the book uh, by Craig Groeschel. And we've been talking about uh, the battlefield that is our thought life. What happens in your brain is not the kinds of things that happens on a playground, but that happens on a battleground. There is a war going on, and you cannot be neutral. You're either being passive to what's going on in your mind, and thus really sin and temptation will have a place to grow in your soul, or you're being active in fighting against sinful thoughts with godly thoughts. Now tonight I want to talk to you about, about this topic. Our panic and God's presence. Our panic and God's presence. If you have Philippians 4, look at uh, look at the chapter beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, and really I just want to I want to point out one phrase that we find that's kind of snuck into this text. But Paul writes this, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. Here's the phrase that I want you to think about. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In telling the Philippians how to have peace in the midst of turbulent times and telling them how they can have peace in the midst of what should have been maybe a turbulent thought life, Paul reminds them that the Lord is at hand. Our panic in God's presence. Back in 2003, uh, Staples changed their slogan. Uh, for years before, it had been something else. I read about now I can't remember what it is. Uh, evidently a very forgettable slogan. But you know what their slogan has been for the last 18 years, don't you? Staples, that was Okay, a few of us, no? Maybe I spend too much time watching TV. So their new slogan, since 2003, it's not really new anymore, that was easy. Now, if you remember any of the old commercials, um, there it would usually be someone talking like in an office setting, and there would arise some sort of need, maybe for supplies, or maybe they were having some sort of logistical problem, and then lo and behold, someone would have this little red button on their desk, and they would push the red button and the whole situation would be changed. And uh, they continued to play those commercials. They were extremely successful. When people thought of Staples, they didn't, that, that had been exposed to the commercials, they didn't think of a, of a company that would make things harder or more difficult. But the idea was this company will solve your problems uh, like with a touch of a button. It's easy. And uh, there were actually so many people that requested. Uh, the ability to purchase one of these easy buttons that they used on the commercials that they started selling them. And if you've been in the Staples, you'll see them, uh, I think, for 10 or $12 uh, over by where you check out. The campaign was successful because it's a fun idea, isn't it? It's appealing, especially for people like us who have difficult lives, <laughs> We want things to be easy, and it, wouldn't it be amazing if when you ran into trouble, when you ran against a threat, when you ran into against some sort of problem, if you could uh, push the easy button and everything would be okay? Now, some of you are thinking, I'm about to say, here's the Christian's easy button, but I'm not, <laughs> because that doesn't exist, does it? We don't have an easy button when we run into problems. We don't have an easy button when we run into threats. We have something Else, It's a little bit less magical and maybe less encouraging. We have a panic button. We have a panic button. We have a button that we press when we encounter something that terrifies us. Uh, Panic, according to the APA, is the sudden, uncontrollable fear reaction that may involve terror confusion and irrational behavior precipitated by a perceived threat. I think you kind of get the idea because we've all experienced it so often, right? Something happens that's unexpected. Something happens that you didn't want it to happen and it triggers this fear in your mind, this terror. It causes you to think maybe, uh, emotionally instead of rationally, and your, uh, your whole mind is focused on this one thing, this one threat, this one problem, or maybe just a potential threat, just a perceived problem. But whether it's perception or reality when it comes to panic, when it triggers inside of you, you push the button. Our panic button in our minds is pushed whenever we encounter one of those perceived threats. Each of us has a kind of panic button in our minds, and we push it often. Now, uh, if you want to think about what this looks like, you could um, think about the the idea of associations, okay? We see or certain things or hear certain sounds, and if we have a negative association with those things because of a past memory, that's one reason we may go into panic mode, Um, a couple of years ago, I was going to a missions trip in Albania. And uh, to do that, you have to fly over the Atlantic. There's really no other good way to go there unless you're going to fly over the water. So uh, when I was on the plane, it was like a 10-hour flight we were on. And I looked down at the water. I had some panic. Number one, I don't like to be in tight spaces. So there there was that going against me. I was going to be in that plane for a very long time. And then number two, I'm terrified of water. Water makes me panic. I mean, not like a drink of water, but like falling into a a deep body of water. And that's because, um, as far as I know, this goes back to when I was a a kid. Uh, My parents thought, um, you know, David's very clumsy, and if he ever gets in the water, he'll sink like a rock, so we should get him swimming lessons, which was probably a good idea. They decided to get me, uh, here's the problem, they decided to get me free swimming lessons, right? Right? Why, why should we pay to teach David how to swim when we can go to this place and they'll do it for free? Well, you get what you pay for. So I had a volunteer swim in, swimming instructor, and she wasn't very good. And she was really, really bad. She would walk off and just leave the kids. So we were doing these laps around the pool with some sort of board that we were hanging on to for dear life. And this was like day one or two. I had no idea how to swim, right? I knew how to get my trunks on. That was about it. So I fell in on the deep end. I didn't know how to swim, so I had to walk on the bottom of the pool all the way to the shallow end, and I got a lot of water in my lungs in the process. Now, I'm okay, obviously, here I am right now. Uh, I don't have any breathing issues with that, but I do have issues with water, and I don't like flying over it because it reminds me of a past problem. Now, you may not have something exactly like that, but there could be other things that make you panic. Uh, it, it could be an alert that there 's a tornado warning. <laughs> Am I right? That causes me panic. I was never in a tornado, but my dad was my my mom my mom 's spiritual gift was worry, and my dad was addicted to the weather channel. So anytime there was any bad weather, you know we 're watching like this documentary on the the most destructive tornadoes in history, and it was very unsettling as a child. so uh, weather like that. Puts me into panic mode. So I was here yesterday evening, and uh, it turns out I'm not the only one that has that issue. Uh, Tanner Walton is even worse. In fact, he was so terrified of the storm last night, it made me feel courageous. Uh, Seriously, it was it was kind of encouraging, Uh, and that may be the case with some of you. You've had bad memories with storms, so you have that that sound that goes off on your phone. You know, get to shelter. You're prepared to meet your maker, whatever Weather Channel says. And, and then you think, man, I'm going to die. This is, this is a terrible way to end. Uh, it could be something like that for you. Or, you know, it could be smaller things that still cause you to panic. If you worry about your image when the scale says you gained six pounds on your vacation, that will put some of you into panic mode. When you get a call from, that wasn't, I mean, that's not funny. Uh, maybe it is. Um, maybe it is for some of us. I don't know guys. uh, When you get a call from the doctor, you know, or or it's uh, somebody that works at your doctor's office, and they say, and I've gotten this voicemail before. It is a terrible voicemail to get. Hey, we noticed some weird things about your blood work. If you want to find out more, call us back. Like, what? (laughs) Have you gotten that phone call? Does that put you into panic mode? Not because something is directly threatening your life, like right in front of you. It's not like, uh, like a car is going to run over you, but there's this idea that I may be about to get bad news. And what do you do? You push the panic button, right? If you get a phone call like that. You're on an elevator and it stops. Panic button. Your, your boss tells you before you leave work, hey, I want to talk to you about something tomorrow. Panic button. Panic button. I guess maybe unless you don't like your job and you're thinking, oh, great, i got to leave this place. But for most of us, that would maybe induce some panic. You texted someone and they didn't respond, or they responded with, okay, dot, dot, dot. That's never good. Now, all of these things can be triggers that push your panic button. There's this threat that is potential, this problem that is perceived. Something bad may be about to happen. And we push the panic button. And when that happens, we tense up. Adrenaline dumps into our body, dumps into our system. We're stressed. We're on edge. We're agitated. And all we can think about is, what if this happens? That's panic. A lot of you already have the worksheets. And here's kind of my idea with these tonight, I want to do something a little bit different. Instead of just taking these home, I actually want you guys to be filling this out kind of while you're listening. Now, if that's not your thing and you don't want to do that, that that's fine. But I think uh, with what we're going to cover tonight, it may be easier for you to write out answers to these questions as we're going. Now, we have six questions. We're only—I'm only going to have you fill out the first four tonight. The last two are for after the service and then during the week, okay? But those first four, I want you to kind of fill out while we're going through this. So uh, number one, what makes you panic? And then number two, if you, can, if you can figure it out, what do you think that goes back to? Where did this start? When did this start happening? How long has this panic been going on? So why, why do we panic? Well, it's not actually a bad phenomenon in and of itself. It's, in fact, a gift from God. Now, it may not feel like that sometimes, and when we are addicted to it and live by it, it certainly doesn't seem like a gift of God at all. But like many things that we overuse or become dependent on, it's actually a good thing that God gave us for the betterment of our lives. Especially since we live in a fallen world. Here's how it works. God made our brains with a tiny almond-shaped piece of gray matter called the amygdala. I wouldn't name your child that if you're expecting, but that's what it's called. The amygdala, okay? Um, Here's what the amygdala does. It's responsible for your emotions and survival instincts when you're facing a threat. Okay, you've heard of uh, flight or fight? That's kind of where this, this comes from, like physiologically. It comes from the amygdala. When you're afraid, it lights up like a pinball machine. There's a lot of uh, neurological activity, and it produces a fight or flight response. I've either got to fix this, or I've got to run away from it. The amygdala, the amygdala de- deploys a ton of adrenaline that goes into your system that prepares your body for action. When you do this, you're going to feel very tense, uh, that, that's because your muscles need to be ready to act in case you have to defend yourself. Not only will you, will you feel very tense, but your digestive system completely shuts down. It doesn't operate. Because all, all of your body's excess energy is going to this response that you may have to have if you're in danger. These other functions are are paused because your amygdala is telling you you need to go in survival mode. You will also, if you're in this for a long time, this mode, you'll begin to feel very stressed. And in addition to that, you'll be fixated on the problem. Now, this is a good thing in many ways. For instance, um, if a snake. A poisonous snake is jumping out of you, or jumping out at you on your hiking trip. You really don't want your excess energy going to digestin'. digestion right then, right? I mean, you want to be able to get away from the snake. It's okay that your mind is fixated on the snake. You don't want to think about what you're having for supper. You don't want to be pulling up your phone and looking at an app. You want all of your energy, all of your attention focused on how do I get away from this venomous beast, right? And that is a gift of God. That helps us survive. There's many other situations where this is a good thing. That's just one example. But here's the problem that can happen with our God-given amygdala. It isn't objective. It's not analytical. The amygdala responds to real threats the same way it responds to perceived threats. And it doesn't have the ability to distinguish between them. And that can lead to problems. Now, if you are confronted with a true threat, if someone is going through the window of your house, the amygdala could save you and your family. But there are things that aren't true threats. And when that's the case, you don't need the extra adrenaline. You don't need to tense up. You don't need all of your attention to be fixated on this one thing. In fact, if, you are, if your amygdala is overactive and you're responding to too many things with panic, it'll start to wear you out physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Your body was not made to be in constant survival mode. That's why people that are in situations like homelessness or um, active combat for long periods of time often take a very long time to recover, if they ever recover, because their body was in high-stress panic mode for so long. It's just not good for you. Now, in those situations, it's pretty much unavoidable, but for most of us, pushing the panic button when we don't need to push the panic button is avoidable. We don't have to do it. Not only is it avoidable, it's incredibly unhealthy. Your body was not made to be always receiving adrenaline dumps. It wasn't made to be always fixated on one thing so much that it shuts everything else out. We were not made to do that. So when you have an almost infinite number of harmless things that you react to as if they are threats, when you're always pushing the panic button, chaos will ensue. You'll be tense, you'll be agitated, you'll be on the edge, you'll be difficult to, to other people that you're around all the time. But God didn't just give us an, an amygdala, of course. He also gave us a prefrontal cortex, which that's the part of our brain that helps us step back and evaluate things. But here, here's the issue. We can, unfortunately constantly fixate on potential threats we can live in such a way where we don't evaluate what's really going on where we don't step back where we don't get that bigger perspective and we live as the slave of the things that make us afraid panic mode 24 7 why do we slip into this mode so easily Why do we get addicted to pushing the button so easily? Well, here's one of the most important principles that has sort of been a recurring theme in this series. Our life will always move in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Your life will always move in the direction of your strongest thoughts. What you think about, what you give your attention to, where your mind lives is where you go. It will determine how you behave, how you treat other people, how you have a relationship or lack of relationship with God. It will determine all of those things. So is there any hope for believers then who are troubled by constant panic? Is there any hope for Christians who are always needlessly pushing the panic button over and over and over and over and over again, even though they're not in danger? There is, and the answer is this. The answer comes in knowing God's presence. Knowing God's presence. Now, there's a great example of this that we find in the Old Testament. Elijah, um, at different times in his life, probably had a little too much adrenaline flowing in his body. (laughs) Elijah, more than once, beat his panic button into oblivion that was in his brain. He was, this wasn't because he was spiritually weak, by the way, and if you have an issue with panic, that doesn't mean you're some sort of, like, deformed Christian or that there's something wrong with your soul. Elijah had trouble with this. Elijah. And, and here's the thing, if you're, if panic is something that you struggle with, if, if uh, you know, if, if you have a tendency to rely too much on this, this, this doesn't mean that there's something drastically wrong with you as a Christian. It, it, it probably means that God needs to help you along in this area, which is what we're talking about tonight, but you shouldn't feel guilty, and you shouldn't feel like you're the only one that's ever dealt with this, because you're not. Even someone who is capable of doing amazing things for God, like Elijah, had trouble with panic, panic when he didn't need to panic. Elijah was a prophet who confronted King Ahab about his sin. He prophesied not good news, but bad news for God's people because of their constant idolatry. Ahab was infuriated and threatened to kill Elijah, but the prophet managed to get away from him and eventually confronted 850 false prophets up on Mount Carmel, came out victorious. With such an incredible triumph Elijah may have thought with all of these priests behind him maybe he thought well all of Israel's false religion was behind him too and now everything was going to be on the up and up and he would be one of those prophets that the kings liked but it was not to be Ahab had an even more evil wife named Jezebel and uh, her evil went to ends that Ahab's did not so Jezebel decided that if her husband couldn't kill Elijah, then she would take care of the problem. Even though Elijah just experienced this amazing victory for God, and had God seemed to do absolutely miraculous things with him, he was still in danger. And it was too much. He was spent. Uh, Elijah, who seemed to have faith in God when it looked absolutely impossible now seems to only fixate on his problems and the threats they present. The the very man who was defined by radical faith, the very man who who seemed to bank everything on the fact that God would save him and, and, and justify his cause on the mountain when he was up against 850 people is now worried that God cannot keep one pagan queen in check. Same man fixated on something different in panic mode. So his, his negative thoughts spiral out of control. He's in deep discouragement. He prays uh, that he would die. Look at 1 Kings 19 and verse 4. First Kings 19 verse 4, it says that he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, you remember I said that in that, in that definition of panic from, that, uh, from the APA's dictionary, uh, one of the uh, symptoms of panic is irrational thoughts or behavior, right? So what is Elijah afraid of? That he's going to die. What does he ask God to do? Kill me. I'm terrified of dying. This is terrible. God, I don't want to die. I don't want to be killed. So God, could you kill me? Now, does that make a lot of sense? No, of course not. He's in panic mode. This man who has amazing faith in God now seems to abandon that almost entirely. Elijah has had enough. He says so, doesn't he? It is enough now, O Lord. You ever had enough? Have you ever had something that brought you so much panic and so much anxiety and so much constant frustration that you, you may have not been suicidal, like clinically, but you lost the will to live, or at least you lost the will to live well. You lost the will to care. You lost the will to try. You lost the will to serve God. You lost the will to be active in the church. You lost the will to be a good husband or to be a good wife or to be the father or mother that you were meant to be or a good friend or a good disciple or a good evangelist to others because you have just had enough. What is that thing that keeps coming back that makes you feel like you've had enough with life? It's on the sheet if you want to write it down, or maybe it's something you'll have to deal with later. But if you have had enough time, if you're here on a Wednesday and you've had enough, again, you're not the only one. So did one of the greatest prophets of all time. He had so much that he was not only ready to literally physically die, but he was ready to completely stop serving the Lord. He didn't care what other plans God had for him in the kingdom. He didn't care about the other things God wanted him to do. He had given up because of this threat that he faced. Elijah is fixated on his problems, and all he can do is push the panic button. Now, most likely, if you're where Elijah is and you've had so much trouble with a particular thing that's brought you panic, you've had so much trouble trouble with this one trigger that causes you to push the panic button, it's probably not because of, a Middle Eastern queen is trying to get you beheaded, although that may be. And if, that's, and if you are in that situation, I just offended you, I'm sorry. But most likely, that's not the problem. Jezebel's not after you. It's something else. It's something else that keeps coming back. It's something else that you're wondering, why in the world wouldn't God take care of this if he's so good? And you're not even asking God to take care of it, of, of it anymore. Because you know, Elijah is not praying that God would take care of Jezebel. He's given up believing that God would even want to do that. He asked God to to kill him. What is the thing that makes you give up? What is the thing that's tempting you to say tonight, enough, I've had enough? It's ironic in the story that we're given because Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. And yet here we have a man who feels like God is completely absent from his life That God's not even there. You remember that Paul told the Philippians they needed to remember, as they face all these temptations and problems and struggling, they needed to remember that the Lord is at hand? Well, that's also what Elijah needed to remember. He forgot that, so the Lord gives him a reminder. Look at 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 11. He said, "'Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord.' And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. What are these images of? Loud, (laughs) unstoppable forces of destruction. Right? Some of you were worried that your roof was going to come off last night because of the wind. Elijah sees all these things in front of him, the earthquake that leaves devastation in its path, the fire that leaves devastation in its path, the wind. God is not in any of these things. But after the fire, a still small voice. Why does God speak to Elijah in a whisper? I mean, would it not have been maybe more powerful or more effective for God to have this massive wind blow through? And then he could have, I mean, you know, God is not limited in how he can have these miraculous manifestations. Why couldn't he have had a voice so loud that it burst Elijah's eardrums? Wouldn't that have impressed him more? What Elijah needs to understand is, is not just that God is good, although he does need to understand that. But what Elijah desperately needs to understand in his moment of panic is that God is close. You know why God whispers? Because when somebody whispers to you, you can't hear them unless they're close. God is whispering to Elijah to show Elijah that when you are in your worst moment of panic, I am right here. I'm right here. Yes, all, yes. the wind is loud. And the fire is hot, and the earthquake is unsettling. Why does God do that? Because God is very honest about how difficult this life is. God's not going to pull the wool over Elijah's eyes and try to make him think that Elijah's life isn't so difficult after all. God's not telling him there's no problems. God's not telling him there's no threats. No, the world is a chaotic place. The world is a destructive place. But God is close. So close that Elijah can hear him whisper. And when somebody that you care about whispers in your ear, that not only means that they're close to you, it means that they want to draw you in. Because what happens? If you have a kid that whispers in your ear your son or daughter, what do you do? You lean in. And if it's my case, if it's Evangeline, then I go out and buy whatever she asked me to buy. Right? (laughs) Right? When your kids whisper in your ears, or something that you care about whispers in your ears, not only does it mean that they're close, it means they want to draw you closer. They want to draw you in. That's what God is doing with Elijah. God is close to Elijah, and here is what God wants Elijah to fixate on God's presence. This is what God wants Elijah to remember. Not that there won't be any problems. Not that there won't be any threats. Not that there won't be any issues that's going to come his way. Not that he'll never be in any danger. Not that he'll never face harm. Because he will. But he wants him to not fixate on those things, but rather fix his mind on this fact that God's presence is always near. That the Lord is here. That he's with him even in those moments that the still small voice is with him in the wind and the earthquake and the fires of life. God whispers because he's close and God whispers to draw us close. What did Elijah learn on the mountain? He learned this. When you've had enough, God is enough. When you've had enough, God is enough. You know, Elijah probably literally physically had to lean in to hear God's voice. We may not do that in the exact same way, but there will be times where we have to lean in in other ways. There will be times when we have to lean in so we're not fixated on our problems, so we're not fixated on our threats, so all of our energy and all of of our attention isn't going to the voicemail, and it's not all going to the unanswered text, and it's not all going to that conversation with our boss. We have to lean in to remember that God is there and listen to him. I don't don't even think there's one way that that's going to look for all of us. For some of us, it means returning to a regular life of prayer. And I don't mean just having a prayer list, although some of us need a prayer list. But a life of prayer where we open up to God about what's really going on in our lives. Not where we perform for God, not where we come up with some really fancy things to say to impress Him, but where we tell God that we're hurting. Where we tell God that we've had enough. That's what leaning in looked like for Elijah. It started with honesty with God. Some of us can't handle that because we've treated prayer as a way to show God how spiritual we are. And some of you have already given up on life, but you're not about to tell God that, and that's the problem. That's the problem. What would it look like for you to lean in? To listen, to pay attention to God, and to remember his presence. You know we have triggers, but it's it's been very uh, it's been uh, decidedly proven in research that we can actually replace old triggers with new triggers. And, and when you panic, uh, or when so, when something causes you to be afraid, or you don't have to necessarily push the panic button if you learn a new trigger. And you know here's a declaration that may help us do some rewiring. We've talked about that before. Here's a declaration: We are when you are confronted with something. That begs for your attention, that it wants you to fixate all of your mind and energy on it. Here's something you can think My experience plus God's experience is enough. I'm sorry, my experience plus God's presence is enough. My experience plus God's presence is enough. When your trigger is hit, remember God is with me. God is with me. I'm not saying don't respond when you need to respond. But I'm saying in in whatever comes up in your life, remember that God is with you. So when you get the alert on your phone that there's a tornado warning, and by the way, I'm hoping we don't have another one for like six or seven years. But if that happens, yeah, go to the shelter. But remember, God is with me. God is with me. When you get the call from the doctor's office, remember, God is with me. The most important thing a panicking Christian can do is remember the presence of God. And by the way, here's what's amazing for us as as New Covenant believers. There is a way that this is true for us, and there is a way that this is true for you in ways that wasn't yet true for Elijah. Think about it. I love John chapter 1. John 1 verses 1 through 14 talks about how God the Son is the Word in that he perfectly represents and perfectly manifests God, but in the flesh. He perfectly communicates God in human flesh because he is God. That's what it means that he is the word. And then verse 14, it says that the word dwelt among us. And the, the, John uses a word there that means tabernacled. When he says dwelt, uh, Jesus sets up a new tabernacle when he comes to earth. The tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament meant uh, this was how the presence of God was mediated to his people, and they could only go in all the way once a year, and that could only be one person. But here in this new tabernacle, in this new temple, uh, Jesus isn't offering us a little room where someone in the Middle East can walk into once a year, but in coming to earth, Jesus offers us himself fully and completely so that we can actually know him and be in a relationship with him. This is what Nicodemus had such a hard time wrapping his mind around. And when Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it, he he wasn't just playing tricks with them or being silly. No, he said temple on purpose. He is the presence of God among us. But but it doesn't end there because in John, uh, in John chapter 16... Jesus told his disciples this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. What? Think he got some blank stares at that? For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. He tells the disciples this. This is just just amazing. When I leave you, things are going to get better. They've been with Jesus for three years. They've, they've seen him raise dead people back to life. They saw him raise himself from the dead. And he tells his disciples, listen, uh, for things to get better, I, I've really got to leave. I'm not going to be with you anymore. <laughs> you see how differently Jesus understands the, present of, the presence of the Holy Spirit than maybe we do? It's understandable for the disciples to have questions about the statement, but after what happened in Acts 2, they no longer had questions. They understood. John wrote this down because he understood it. We see that and we think, man, I would much rather be with Jesus in the first century than have the presence of the Holy Spirit. That just shows how much we neglect what it is that we have. God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus was God with us, not just for 33 years, But He is God with us because He sends the Holy Spirit to be in those that believe in Him. Now, I want to make it clear that that what we're talking about tonight, dealing with panic for the Christian, is that. It is for the Christian. So, if you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior, a lot of the things that we're talking about now just aren't going to apply to you. And I don't say that pridefully or caustically. I want them to apply to you, and that's why uh, you need to trust in Jesus, But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. We'll finish in Psalm 145. Uh, Psalm 145, beginning in verse 17. Look at it up on the screen. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh, that means close, unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry, and will save them. What does the psalmist say? God's people will never be in danger. God's people will never cry out. No, (laughs) that's not what he says. Some of us wish that's what it was. No, the psalmist says God's people will be people that will have to cry out. God's people will be people that have threats. God's people will be people that have problems come at them. But those same people God is close to He's not just close to them, he hears them. How long has it been since you've remembered that God hears you? I know, you know, if you, like, pray for your your meal or maybe pray for your devotions, you know, technically, yeah, God knows what I'm saying. but, But how long has it been since you really understood, since you've really grasped the idea that God hears you? that he takes in your words of pain and desperation, that he cares about what you say. Well, if it's been a while since you have remembered that, then I want you to know, Christian, that God hears you. God hears us even in our panic. There's two more steps on your sheet. One of them is, uh, and you don't have to do this now, but I want you to think about it maybe after this service, um, You know, when it comes to your panic, this is something that we're often very private about and personal about, but it it may be a good idea for you to actually talk to someone else about this. You know, something that when we get really locked into panic, like I said, we can become irrational and, 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 and emotional, and it may help to have another voice in our life. There's another thing I want you to do during this week, just for a couple moments a day, and that is go to Psalm 145. Read the, we only read three verses. I want you to read and meditate on. If you don't know what meditation is, go back, to the, go back in the podcast, find it. Meditate on Psalm 145 just for a couple moments every day. Think about it for seven days in a row. And I want you to see whether or not it affects how you respond in situations where you feel like you need to push the panic button. If you think, well, meditating on a psalm wouldn't help with that. Well, don't knock until you try it. Give it a shot. Have you been hitting the panic button a lot recently? Are you so fixated on potential problems that you forget the presence of God? God invites you to remember that whatever frightens you, whatever is bothering you, whatever triggers your panic, God is here with you now. Your experience plus God's presence, is enough. Let's all stand.